Boo. Did that scare you guys? Probably not, because scaring people through a podcast or a movie or a TV show is kind of hard work. I mean, think of all the terrible horror movies just in the backwoods of Netflix. It's crowded in there. This week, cinephile and most useful podcast ever co-host Kevin Dupsick talks to Daniel Espinoza, director of the sci-fi horror film Life, currently in theaters. The plot of the movie involves six astronauts living on the International Space Station who discover life on Mars. I don't think it's giving too much away to say that it does not go well. During their talk, Espinoza gave Kevin some tips on making scary movies, which might help you keep from freaking out while watching them. Also on this week's episode, we have a totally new segment called You Shoulda Asked Roy, in which our very own senior home editor Roy Berenson critiques the plumbing skills of the characters on Jungle Town, a new show on Viceland in which an entrepreneur and a bunch of volunteers attempt to build utopia in Panama. What could go wrong? Finally, Kevin Dupsick has gotten into camping lately and brought a bunch of camp stoves to the testing table to tell us how they worked. Come to think of it, he didn't bring us any food, though. What the heck, Kevin? Where's Kevin? Kevin! Right now joining me is Daniel Espinosa. He's the director of the new movie Life, which stars Jake Gyllenhaal and Ryan Reynolds. It's in theaters now, and Daniel, I saw this movie already. I love scary movies, and I love sci-fi. This is definitely both of those things. Thank you, thank you, thank you. I, 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 I do my best. I do my best. <laughs> Um, you know, after watching this movie, and we're not going to spoil the movie, so maybe we can use examples for other films, but um, what I thought would be interesting is we definitely have, uh, you know, budding auteurs among our listening audience, and we talk about filmmaking now and then, and watching this movie, I was just thinking about all the different ways that um, you do a good job of really scaring the audience, and how different movies have different styles, and I was hoping maybe uh, you could talk a little bit about what it takes to to really scare audiences and what some of the tricks are that you've learned as a director in doing that? I think that you have like uh, two very kind of evident, uh, uh, you know, motions. You know, one is the suspense and one is surprise, right? Suspense is built on information. So it's the, it's the, it's the timing of your information. So you as an audience feel that you are slightly behind, but you're always informed about the next potential danger, you know? And it's uh, the equivalent of, you know, you're having a car who's driving very fast, and then you see the cliff before the car, the car sees it. And, the, and therefore, it creates suspension. And then well, when it's released, uh, you, you are, your emotion is kind of built up to it. The other one is surprise. And surprise is quite interesting, because surprise is, is often about holding back. I found that when I kind of uh, had uh, put in too much music and too much, uh, you know, sounds that it was supposed to kind of give a thrilling feeling around the characters, you were not uh, 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 scared enough, you know? Yeah. Uh, it's the withdrawal of uh, sensory information. And if you do that, uh, you know, and um, you slowly take away sound, and you take away the kind of comfort of, uh, of, uh, uh, of the music, the kind of points where, where, where you're heading, um, it's, it's a very kind of uh, unnatural feeling. As a, as a human being, I think you know, and it's almost like your 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 ears are stopping to work, you know, and your eyesight is is uh, is slowly going blinder, and then you hit them with the surprise. It, the, the surprise is hits you much harder. Yeah, so it seems like in both cases you sort of have to do the work 
properly as a director to kind of set the audience up. When you were talking about suspense, I was thinking about how it's almost like pulling back slowly on a rubber band or something. Um, and yeah. I guess, so yeah. part of the trick there is that you sort of have to give the audience just the right amount of information to know that that snap back is coming. Like I'm thinking about kind of the classic thing of like somebody being tied to the train tracks and then you see like the shot of the train around the bend that's on its way. Yes, exactly, exactly. And the timing with that. And what's always interesting is then to kind of add in new information that uh, that, that, that makes you feel that, you know, that, that suddenly, you know, your timeline is disrupted, you know? Because as soon as you can make a plan, uh, you, you grow calmer, you know? And, you know, it's the classic thing with somebody hanging from a rope at a cliff when you see a close-up of the rope and how it's slowly dissolving, you know? Yeah. And then, you know, at the point where you go like, okay, he has this amount of time, then it hits, you know, a piece of rock, and then, you know, it starts dissolving much faster. The good thing then is to try to hit the surprise moment or the scare moment a second before you think it's actually, actually going to happen. I wanted to ask, uh, also, are there certain kinds of shots, whether they're wide shots or close-up shots or, or slow pans, are there certain things that you find um, work really well uh, in, these, in these moments of surprise visually? The strange thing is that, you know, when you're really going to scare the shit out of somebody, it's really <laughs> good to have a completely normal lens. You know? It's a completely normal lens that gives you the sensation of that things are finally normal. So you go through, you know, you can build up the silent tension of a man just walking around in the house and you know somebody's there. So the first couple of shots, you do the long lens, like somebody's observing this man, right? Mm-hmm. So you build up the tension with that. And then slowly you go closer with a completely normal lens with the, with the, with the, the character. So your body kind of go like, the, the voyeurism is gone. Now I can relax. And yeah. then you hit them. So you kind of, you know build up the tension in the body, and as soon as they think they can relax, you hit them right over the face with it. <laughs> it sounds like you enjoy this a little too much. No, I mean, you know, I mean, it, 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 it just, that's why we all admire, you know, yeah. the great Japanese tradition of horror, you know, because we, just, we can truly feel, you know, that the, these are masters of horror, you know, and that's why we always feel so disappointed with the, with the, you know, because the thing is that with those Japanese movies is that they're slow, and that's why the kind of transition, you know, the translation to an American remake is always very tricky because, uh, you know, the American tradition is speed, you know, mm-hmm. but speed has to do with suspense. But I think many of those Japanese actors, uh, directors, they work with surprise, and in surprise, slowness is quite fun because then when the surprise hits, it's the acceleration of the rhythm that creates the greatest surprise. You know, but I think that one thing that also really scares us is fate. So if if the camera is not doing too much, but things just keep going wrong, then you also get a sensation of that this is um, uh, this will not deter. You know, this will not stop. Yeah. It's like you, if you ever been in a street fight, and uh, and and uh, you're in a street fight with a you know a big construction worker, and then you realize that no matter how young and agile you are, this beast of a man would not stop and that puts the fear of god in you yeah and sort of that you're saying that in a in a film in some way the equivalent of that is this kind of deliberate pacing it's, it's where, the camera shot yeah 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 because if you think of like those great you know japanese masterpieces 
the application is low pace, you know, and you slowly can feel that your shoulders are getting, getting more and more dense because you know that um, you understand that there's something um, unapologizing about the pace. Mm-hmm. And uh, and that this hell ride that you started will not let up. It will not, you know, you know, let you relax, and it will go on, you know, in, until the very end. Yeah, um, I also wanted to ask, uh, and maybe you can answer this sort of with an eye to somebody who's listening to this who you know doesn't have the budget to do fancy computer special effects. But um, I was struck by the. Yeah. I mean, you had to design an alien for this for this film and there's a few really iconic aliens and i'm curious uh you know how do you how do you create something visually like that that's totally from the imagination it's not just you know it's not something familiar like a car driving in the mountains or a person walking through a house when you're designing something um that nobody's seen before outside of their own imagination uh how do you do that in a way that sort of creates that's evocative what we did was that i just you know, gave the job to scientists that specialize on creation of of uh, of life, of how life was created on planet Earth, and uh, and I asked him with the information that we have from the script, to kind of um, come up with a scientific perspective of how a creature like this would evolve in gravity. And I think that you know, when you create anything that doesn't exist from before, you have to find the the perspective that it's outside of you just drawing doodles on a paper, you know? Yeah. That uh, you have to find, like, um, you have to find the rule set, you know, mm-hmm. of, uh, of, of uh, what your, what your uh, fear will contain. Yeah. I mean, it sounds, I mean, I feel like what you've said throughout this conversation, whether you're talking about having real-life rules, uh, or using a normal lens, or having deliberate pacing, is that real life is, is scary. It is, it is, it is, it is. I think you have to go into those kind of fundamental um, fears, you know, which is violation, uh, 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 oppressiveness, containment, you know, mm-hmm. claustrophobia. Right. There are always those things that disturb us. Um, well, all right, I know we're just about at, at time... Uh, I appreciate you coming on the show. And just as a last question, I'm curious if you have a favorite scary moment from a movie. For me, you know, to go back to the shining. For me, after after we had Jack Nicholson do the interview, to then go back to uh, the family, we're sitting in the normal house, and this little boy that had this uh, this uh, these fantasies about uh, the talking to his little dog, and then suddenly this little boy goes up to a mirror, and that moment when that boy kind of talks about where we're going in the future uh, of the picture is the most scary moment I have ever seen. <laughs> That's great. Uh, well, Daniel, thanks again. Really appreciate this. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for thank you for, for talking about cinema. That was nice. Yeah, no, I I really enjoyed it. So we're calling this segment You Should Have Asked Roy. Um, A lot of pop culture shows these days are a little bit unsafe. I feel like uh, reality shows in particular, first there was Survivor, then there was Naked and Afraid, and it's like taking surviving without clothes on, surviving without clothes on in a fire, surviving without clothes on in a fire on a boat. (laughs) 
how crazy can it get? So this week, uh, Jungle Town debuted on Viceland on Tuesday, and it, this one, this is a little bit of a crazy show. Peter, you watched it. I did. Roy and I both watched. We didn't watch together. We should have watched together. Yeah, it, it was an education. <laughs> <laughs> so what's the premise of the show? Uh, there is a guy who decided he was going to build what he says is not a utopia, but feels like just a very granola utopia land in Panama. We're building a town to look for the best ways we can live in terms of compassionately treating each other in a global community. Access to food. So okay. access to brings a bunch of people down. People pay money to go down for little summer camp stints and work on the work on the town and build it together and and grow as people. All right, so and they're they're building a first episode. Town. A big big part of it was just them trying to get water from the stream to their town. They have these huge water tanks and they're trying to run PVC pipe from the stream all the way down and. I think, Roy, it was fair to say they were bumbling in many parts. <laughs> yeah. Should I ask Roy? This PVC system is not supposed to be permanent. I mean, you see how we have it set up. We keep it down with big rocks. The next big rainstorm is going to wash a bunch of them away. So, uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, whether, whether, right, yeah, whether for the sake of drama or whether, in fact, it looked uh, hard, too, in their no, defense. No, it, it did, did yeah. not look easy. That's right. I mean, you know, in, installing, um, you know, a water supply system in Central America, South America, anywhere in the third world is a tough project, you know. Uh, <laughs> let's face it, people, you know, Western people have been trying to do this since the, actually before the Panama Canal. That's why the first Panama Canal was a fiasco. So what were the what were the main things they were bumbling about? Like the well, pipes just, or so the water was flowing pretty quickly, and it's probably a leave no trace sort of operation. So they don't want to add concrete structures and different scaffolding and things to hold it up. So they were trying to prop it up, sometimes with little two inch rocks and things. Ooh. And guys were knocking it over accidentally and slipping. And it yeah, yeah. I mean, the, the you know, I'm no. Uh, first of all, I'm not. I don't claim to be an infrastructure expert, let alone an infrastructure. A water infrastructure expert in, you know, underdeveloped countries. You're not. <laughs> <laughs> no, yeah, no. Among among my other d- disqualifications, um, but any construction project, any construction project, whether it's as simple as building a picnic table for your backyard, or something more massive like supplying water to your to your future suicide pact group. Right, right, yeah. Right, the water supply system for, for your utopian community. You know, all of these projects have one thing in common, and that is basic due diligence. You need at least some people with some construction experience. You, you would hope that somebody did some basic surveying, had a topo map available to understand i mean it, people I bet have, they played bongos they probably did a little it, bit of that is yeah, bongos could, like it, a topo map because yeah. it has two o's in it or like <laughs> <laughs> it could only it, it could help you know relax you after a long day of like you know crashing through a stream and you're you know with your flip-flops on tevas it's got to be tevas doesn't it, must, it? Uh, yeah so, yeah, I mean, when it's all said and done, all, you know, granola aside, <laughs> it, it's a construction project. Y- you know, y- you want to do some research and do some preparation. All, j- all construction projects, all mechanical projects are broken down into preparation, execution, and cleanup. And each one of those three phases, it's like construction know-how 101 here, 
Each one of those phases is broken down into two tools and materials, you know. So separate out the granola, separate out the utopian, and like what was the preparation? What was the execution? What is the cleanup? They don't want to leave a trace on the land? Well, how, how, do, you, how do you avoid doing that, you know, so... Right, you can't you know. just go out. It's uh, it's funny. Something like this, I feel like, um, it's very exciting to to think. Okay, we're you know we're new world. We're gonna you know do something the way it was always done and all this. But like without having the, you know people learn those skills from <laughs> from people. And if you don't have them, I think you realize very quickly the advantages of buying like a pre made house now in the modern world. It's yeah. it's difficult and it's dangerous. Or bringing Roy. On and you your, have to know you project. have to know or bring Roy. Yeah. <laughs> those are well, your yeah. options. Yeah. <laughs> but they they did obviously succeed. People eventually had water. Oh, wow. So, That's good. Um, but I think also because not a lot of us will actually have to build a water supply system like this from a stream, we were thinking that we would have Roy teach us a little bit just about regular home PVC projects. Oh, well, what is a standard sort of project you would do in home with PVC? I had a bad PVC experience. You did? Uh, coincidentally. <laughs> yeah, I didn't know about that. Offer it up. So we were trying to add a disposal to our... Um, our sink at home and had to work with the dishwasher line that was already fed off and we had to rerun some of the piping that was in there and when it came time to add the cement to the pvc it wouldn't stick and we couldn't figure it out and it was driving us crazy and every other piece underneath the sink worked fine um and finally we figured out it was cpvc instead oh, of pvc CPVC, yeah i did mm -hmm. not know there was a difference mm -hmm. they both look white and plastic what? and they're what? I'm not. Roy's going to answer the what. <laughs> oh, Roy's going to answer that question. Okay. Well, yeah. You, sh yeah. you should have asked Roy. Exactly. I really should have. Well, fortunately, plumbing products, all plumbing products, have the material listed on it. Oh, so I should have read the pipe. Is what you're <laughs> yeah, saying. I mean, it, it, all, all like plumbing. The back, you know, it has. It was in the very back, very close to the wall. Okay. And if you've ever been under a sink, it's tough to maneuver or read back there. What's the difference between the two? They're very similar. They're, you would say, cousins, you know, plastic cousins. I've seen that band, the plastic cousins. <laughs> They're great. <laughs> uh, all plastic pipe needs to be, you're either going to prime it or you're going to, they do have primer adhesives uh, combinations today. So the, the container is going to, to help you figure out whether it bonds CPVC, PVC, and other plastics. And sometimes it's as simple as that. Pipe has the schedule number on it. It tells you usually what it is. It tells you who the manufacturer is. Does that matter ever? Um, it, it does to professionals, and it does on large jobs where you've pulled a permit. Like you have to use Schedule 40 just to choose one example, in, in some parts of the house, that's a specific type of PVC pipe rated for certain pressure and applications. So, yeah, I mean, for, for if you're going to put an addition on your house, you're doing the work yourself, you're doing a gut refurbishing of a bathroom or a kitchen, and it's inspected, and it should be inspected, then, yeah, yeah, that stuff does matter. Generally, you're, you, with all plastic plumbing, you cut it, cut it to length. You have to allow for the hub, what's called the hub distance, the, the socket into which the pipe fits. Mm -hmm. You deburr the cut. You clean it. And how, do you, how do you do that? You use um, like a, a Dremel or something? Uh, you could use a Dremel. They, they make uh, a, a little widget called a deburring tool. Takes, huh. the, takes the rough edge off. Okay. You can also use sandpaper. In some cases, a uh, coarse woodworking file will also work if you don't want to 
buy an extra tool, they're good to own. You know, you quickly run that thing around the circumference of the pipe, and it takes the burr off, makes for um, a smoother fit, watertight fit. You prime it, you mark the positions of the pipe with a Sharpie pen, and then you just put on the adhesive, slide the pieces together, and you give it a slight twist so that um, you want to be sure that the adhesive distributes itself across the joint. Pretty much that's it. Yeah. I mean, it takes, takes a few seconds. So for someone like me, how do I find a good plumber? Ah. <laughs> For our testing table this week, we sent Kevin out into the wilderness, or rather, Kevin sent Kevin out. I sent myself the, out in the into the wilderness alone with uh, like a million stoves. Yeah, it was two people's worth of camping equipment and twelve people's worth of cooking equipment. And how many people were there? Two of us. Um, <laughs> so here was the basic idea: is that I like camping, and now that I live in New York, I really feel like I just have to get out of the city sometimes. And I decided recently I want to start camping more because it's not as expensive as flying somewhere and getting a hotel. But as a kid, my family had like your Coleman two burner green fold open stove. And that's what I have. And I just was like, I'm sure there's other ways to cook things for car camping that I don't know about. So I just decided to look around and see what was out there. Oh, cool. Uh, I tried two sort of stoves that have weird designs and then one portable smoker. This was interesting. So, okay. So the first stove, which actually I was really impressed by. Um, it's from this company, Eureka, and it's called the Gonzo Grill. And it's um, you can buy it on their website now, but it's not uh, in stores yet. It's $190, and it's kind of like if a normal camp stove and a Weber grill had a baby. Ooh. So it's shaped like like a baby Weber, um, and uh, but it takes a propane tank like a normal camp stove. Mm-hmm. And it has one pretty large burner in the center, and it has kind of your normal steel grate that you can set up like a pan on top of. Mm-hmm. But... Directly above that, there's a piece of cast iron that's removable. So you can take the cast iron off and just use it like it's a stovetop and put a pot on it. Mm-hmm. If you put the cast iron on, one side is flat, so it's a griddle. And the other side is like a raised grill so that you could like do a steak on it and get grill lines. And you can just flip it over whichever side you want. Oh, cool. So you basically get th- two cooking surfaces plus just a stove burner. Um, but the other thing is that it also has a port. So it's the same uh, Eureka is made by the same company that makes jet boil stuff. So it has a port, so you can connect a jet boil burner. So you have the the Gonzo grill, you've got your propane tank plugged in, and then just with a separate hose, you can connect like a satellite burner. So like I use this to make breakfast. I made pancakes on the grill, and then I heated up my coffee on, in a percolator on the satellite grill with just one propane tank out. Oh, nice. Um, because that's sort of the one limitation is you only get one grill with this thing. You get different surfaces, but you only get one burner. Right. But then you can add these, you can kind of daisy chain the second burner on. So it's just, this was like, everything about it was well thought out. It's a little bit heavier than a normal camp stove because of the cast iron. Yep. But it kind of hides all the, has an automatic igniter. The adapter that you use to plug, uh, to screw in your propane tank is kind of stows away underneath. Um, it's still only, you know, it's probably 15 inches in diameter, so it's not huge. Like, you can move it around really easily. Um, so that was, like, probably my favorite thing. I was to say, it sounds like it was your favorite. Yeah, it was It was just really well thought out. And then the other stove I tried is this um, this company called Primus, which I think is Swedish, maybe, and it's spelled O-N-J-A. I don't know how you're supposed to pronounce this. Anja. 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 Um, so 
it sort of looks like a normal kind of Coleman stove, but instead of opening like a briefcase, it opens more like scissors. So there's a hinge like two thirds of the way up. And when you open it, the bottom part, so the long, the cutting legs of the scissors, right, form a stable wide base. Mm -hmm. And the propane tanks go in between those and screw into the burners underneath. Like, and a, then, like a picnic table almost. Right, okay. yeah. Okay. And then the top is where the burners are. So the idea is that if you don't have that kind of back wall in the side things to block the wind, then you can put bigger pots and pans on it because it's an open, you know, they're not going to butt up against the sides. Okay. And it also means it has a smaller footprint on the table. And this thing, so the cool thing about this was that it weighs like nothing. It's like seven pounds. Like it's definitely the lightest camp stove I've ever so carried around. So if you're like an Appalachian Trail sort of dude, that's... I mean, it's still big, so I don't think it's like a true backpacking thing, but oh, it's like okay. if you're if you're parking someplace and then walking in three miles to the clearing where you're going to set up, yep. that's fine. Okay. Um, and it's also pretty well thought out, so it has a shoulder strap so you can carry it really easily, and the thing that covers up the grill when you're just storing it is a wooden cutting board, so like when you're carrying it, that cutting board kind of holds the, the strap The cutting board upright. is what I always forget when I go camping. Yeah. I cannot tell you how many times I've had to cut things up on a plate. It's literally every time I've gone camping. Yeah, you know, I know. <laughs> like every time. Yeah. So it comes with the cutting board. So the downfall here is that um, because of the way it sort of scissors open, it doesn't have as good of wind protection. So this mm -hmm. is the problem I ran into was that it just kept getting blown out. Uh, okay. um, and I imagine that if you oriented it right, you know, like depending on the way the wind is blowing, it's probably there are certain angles from which it's better protected. Mm -hmm. But I don't know, we'd already started cooking and it feels a little bit more like a balancing act because there aren't sides. Um, so it was like, I'm not going to move this when I have like water boiling in a pot on top of it. Right. Um, but it was really lightweight. I think it would be for, even though it doesn't weigh a lot, so you could carry it further. I think it's for more lighter duty right. stuff. And then you said you tried another one too, like a, a weirder one. Yeah. So I tried a smoker, a portable I'm smoker. I'm excited about this smoker. Yeah. This was great. I, this, this I probably was more impressed by than the Gonzo grill, but it was just less, I mean, it's like more practical. specific use. Yeah. yeah. So this is from this company called Traeger that Matt Allen really likes, and he told me to check this thing out. It just okay. came out. It's called the PTG Plus, and um, it's so it weighs forty pounds. It's pretty big. I mean, it, you know, it's definitely a car camping thing, but you could fit it in the trunk of a Honda Civic. Um, so it's electric. So I actually woogie, used woogie woogie woogie. Sorry, <laughs> can't, I can't help myself when people do that. Nice. Yeah, go nice on. That. <laughs> um, but uh, so I, I used a power inverter that Traeger has power, like makes power inverters also. So I was able to plug it up to the battery of my car and um, it has a hopper for wood chips or for wood pellets. And then there's a heating element um, that's electric. So you plug it in, you turn it on and it slowly feeds wood chips into the heating element. And if you put it on the smoke setting, it stays really cool and it has a lid. So you just put like, I made two things on it. I made a damn good steak Ooh. Um, that I smoked for like half an hour. So you just smoke it at the lower temperature and then you can turn it and then it's like all electronics. Then you just turn a knob. It goes up to 450 degrees. So like smoked the smoked it for half an hour, took it off, put, turn it to 450, let it get up to temperature and then 20 minutes, like 10 on each side. And it was great. Okay. I also made mac and cheese, which was incredibly unhealthy, but really good because uh -huh. it had a little bit of like a richer flavor from being in the smoke box, basically. Mm -hmm. um, but it was so easy to set up and so easy to use. And uh, I think because it's trying to keep the the pellets like just barely lit if you're smoking. This also seemed to be affected a little bit by the wind um, when I was doing the smoking temperatures. When it was like set to 450 and it was like we're just lighting them on fire and like get really hot, then the wind never gave mm -hmm. any trouble, but at the low temperatures. Um, 
But it was pretty amazing. I thought that there would sort of be some catch, like it was too big or bulky, and you would have to be able to plug it into something. Right. But, um, I mean, power I'm imagining, like, cheap. smoking a, just a chicken in there. Although, yeah. I guess you could grill it, but that sounds really good, though. Yeah, but it's nice because it has the grill surface, too. I mean, if you didn't even want to smoke something, if you just wanted to have it be almost like an electric barbecue, yeah. you have that, too. Yeah. Um, and it's pretty good size. So when I made the mac and cheese, I used a just a large 13-inch cast iron skillet and mm-hmm. I was able to fit that on the grill area with the lid closed which nice. is probably about as big of a like cooking uh, or as big of a dish as you could fit in there but right. obviously there's enough room for like I did two steaks at once and could have done three more four more like, and then good so you, size was there one more after this um, so the last thing I that I did try was just sort of like like a traditional Coleman camp stove but mm-hmm. like the beefed up versions so this was the uh, Mountaineer from Camp Chef okay um, so it's huge like the it probably has twice or maybe one and a half times the cooking area of a normal camp stove, um, but it's aluminum. So they really made it to be like a bigger true camp stove, but it, it's really light because it's aluminum. Um, so it's a little bit more unwieldy to carry, but like it, I was able to put like two two pans side by side and the percolator in the center because it's just a big grilling space. Oh, that's nice. And it, they're really big burners. So it's actually designed to hook up to like a, five gallon propane tank like you'd use with a barbecue so that this is for like you've got a big group you're cooking out at the beach and you're going to be around for a week or something you can just bring a big tank of propane and cook off of it and i use an adapter to just plug in the like one pound green propane canisters that you normally take camping Mm -hmm. um which was easy enough uh but it was really good too and that was just kind of like it was didn't weigh much more than what i would be used to having to pack in and out um but burned hotter and had more space to cook more things on yeah so so your vote for this is the Eureka Gonzo. I think it was the most versatile and just the most well thought out. I, every detail of it I was impressed by. Yeah. Yeah. That's It sounds good to me. Although I really like this idea of the smoker. I feel like it's got a good tailgating vibe to it. Oh, to yeah. Me. And how, how much that was the Traeger? Yeah. So that's 300. Okay. Um, Gonzo Grill is 190. Those are, those are the two that I thought were really notable. Yeah. How often yeah. are you going camping now? This is like... I hope now, well, now that I have all these things to cook with, maybe every weekend, I don't know. Oh. I yeah. might just work from the field. From just, just work from the, t- uh, Kevin's in the tent, no Wi-Fi. I would like to go once a month, I think. It's sort of my goal for for the, when the weather's tenable. So, uh, listeners, you can expect a lot more camping updates from Kevin. From yes. Camping Kevin. That's the, cam- Camping Kevin. <laughs> my whole life I've been waiting for a name you like this. You just want it to be better than the Curious Idiot. Yeah, it doesn't take much. So that's our show. The Most Useful Podcast Ever is produced by the staff of Popular Mechanics and edited by Jesse Wright Mendoza. We'd like to thank Sarah Bentley and Andy Bowers from Panoply and Popular Mechanics Editor-in-Chief Ryan D'Agostino. Please subscribe to our show on iTunes. And while you're there, leave us a comment. We'd love to know what you think. And if you want to read more about life tips from weird movies and TV shows, check out our website, popularmechanics.com. While you're there, you can subscribe to the print and digital edition of Popular Mechanics magazine for just $13.99 a year. I'm Jacqueline Detweiler. Thanks for listening.